The Fanboy, episode 132. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 132 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Look, I know who's not doing so hot this week, and that's basically anyone who works for Warner Brothers, because this week has been a tough one. There have been a, a number of large stories from large publications that basically take a sledgehammer to the way that the DC Films initiative has been handled these last several years, from Fisher opening up more about his cyborg issues or Chris Terrio opening up more about what happened creatively on the two films that he was asked to write. It has not been an easy week of public relations if you work for Warner Brothers. And before I get into all that, before I start breaking down some Zack Snyder's Justice League numbers, um, I also just kind of want to offer a quick disclaimer. Today's show may have, from time to time, some sound effects in the background that make it sound like I'm recording to you live from the middle of the Battle of Metropolis in Man of Steel. But uh, no, in fact, I am not in the middle of a large-scale alien invasion. Uh, there's just construction happening outside. It's been going on and off for the last three months. I am way over it. But the construction sounds and the beeping of the giant trucks and the smashing of the ground, that's happening intermittently as I record this to you. So if you hear any weird sounds, please don't worry about your boy. I'm not about to be crushed or, or annihilated by Krypton's invading forces. No, no, no. There's just construction happening outside. But now, in terms of things that were crushing or perhaps not crushing, we got our Zack Snyder's Justice League numbers this week. Or I should say we got some. And I've been saying for a long time, the numbers are going to really determine everything here. Everything about restoring the Snyderverse, everything about deciding whether or not green lighting the just you know the Snyder cut was even a smart decision by them. You know, a, a lot of things were going to become clear once we saw the numbers. And this week, some numbers began to you know leak out. And it's not you know it, it, we're not going to get those exact figures we'd like. I know we'd love to see. Okay, how many times was it downloaded on day one? How many times has it been downloaded overall? You know, there there are certain black and white, clear cut numbers that most fans would love to lay their eyes on. But when it comes to streaming, and this isn't uh, spe specific to Zack Snyder's Justice League, by the way, but when it comes to streaming, getting direct figures, getting direct numbers from any of these streamers is incredibly hard, and it has been for years. That's why no one ever really knows how well or how poorly a Netflix show is doing. And that's why Netflix cancellations, have you ever noticed that Netflix cancellations always seem to catch people by surprise? When after a season or two, the the plug is suddenly pulled on a show. And that always is, you always get people going, oh my God, how did that happen? But part of that is because we never knew if it was a hit or not to begin with. All we knew is that we as individuals liked whatever that show was and now it's gone. Because, you know, these streaming shows sort of exist in their own sort of alternate data stream. And it's hard to ever really know if they're doing what they should be doing or not. 
And we only ever seem to know whether or not they're doing well by whether or not the show gets some more seasons, right? So we don't get to know, traditionally speaking, whether or not a show is a hit until we hear if it's renewed or canceled. That's how it's been ever since the the, the streaming era began. Because in the past, you could just look at the Nielsen ratings and you could determine, okay, this show is pulling in consistently great numbers. Of course, it's going to get another season. We can compare those numbers to what's happening on the other networks at that same time slot. You know, there was a more tactile way to digest and analyze numbers before the age of streaming because Nielsen ratings allowed you to attach some specific data to viewership. Now, when it comes to streaming, a lot of it is more like peripheral media trying to measure exactly how much activity a, a streaming you know, property generated and how many times was the app itself opened up on the weekend that this thing came out or, you know, how much of streaming traffic was dominated by a particular app when a particular series came out. And based on that, we could determine if whether or not that thing was a hit compared to stuff that opened on another streamer that weekend. You know, it's all very sort of like kind of oddly vague and frustrating trying to make sense out of streaming numbers. And listen, a lot of it is kind of beyond my pay grade. So this week I've read an awful lot of analysis on the numbers from three or four different third-party sources, from different box office pundits and whatnot who seem to have somewhat of a grasp on the situation. And even with a week of reading up on all that stuff, I couldn't tell you one way or the other exactly how well or how poorly Zack Snyder's Justice League did. But what I can sort of share with you are just some general observations and some things to keep in mind. So a general observation is it didn't overperform. It doesn't seem like it made the kind of rallying cry dent that people were hoping. You know, it looks like aside from like perhaps its day one release, it was never really number one in any of the big main metrics. Now, that's not an in, that's not a bad thing. It was still in the top five or possibly second or third place. Like overall, over these last several months, Zack Snyder's Justice League, you know, that film has done some well enough to be in the top three or four or five streaming properties of the last three or four months. So that's pretty impressive. It's there in the conversation for top things streamed. And that's a big deal because remember Warner Brothers did not promote this film. There was not a traditional press tour, right? We didn't see Ben Affleck and Gal Gadot out there doing fresh interviews for Zack Snyder's Justice League. The only person really doing any press for it was Zack Snyder himself. But his blockbuster cast wasn't even asked to come back and promote. And the only real actor that you had pushing it was Ray Fisher on his personal Twitter account. But this was not a film that was pushed heavily by the studio. So that's something to factor in too. So it wasn't promoted all that hard. The cast didn't go out and do press for it. And yet it still seems like it, it's within the top five of all streaming properties of these last four or five months. You know, a lot of people use Wonder Woman 84 as sort of like the barometer. And unfortunately, even with Wonder Woman 84, we don't have exact figures for how it did. Okay, we, we still don't. We don't have exact numbers to attach 
to the success or failure of Wonder Woman 84. But that is kind of what people are using as the beginning of our comparison, since it is another major DC blockbuster that has hit HBO Max in these last few months. A lot of people look to that and then say, how did Zack Snyder's Justice League compare to that? And unfortunately, it did not ever actually eclipse Wonder Woman 84. It came, it sounds relatively close, but overall Wonder Woman 84 was the bigger hit. And then the bigger issue is that around Justice League, you had other films that generated more of that activity on the apps than Zack Snyder's Justice League did. You have films like Judas and the Black Messiah, which is like an indie, more art house, uh, hard hitting historical drama. Not really the kind of movie that you would typically expect to do better than a Justice League movie, right? Then there was Tom Jerry, the Tom and Jerry movie that came out at the very end of February. That apparently did really well. And according to certain third party metrics and whatnot, it actually did better than Zack Snyder's Justice League. And then you have the head of legendary pictures coming out and pointing out that Godzilla versus Kong, which came out a week after the Snyder Cut, you have the head of Legendary Pictures saying that Godzilla versus Kong led to the largest increase in HBO Max subscriptions of any film on the platform so far. So it didn't do as well as Wonder Woman 84, and it, it was beaten a week later by Godzilla versus Kong. Meanwhile, Tom and Jerry and Judas and the Black Messiah apparently also performed better than it in most of, you know, in, in most of the metrics that get passed around now in terms of streaming suppliers. So, like I said, it's still in the top five, which is no small feat. Because when you're not getting promoted, when you're not having a studio put all of their energy behind you, it's very hard for you to stand out, especially in this age where everything is streaming. Remember, we're still amidst the COVID pandemic where most people get their entertainment through streaming. So if your movie or show comes out and it's in the top five of all streaming properties that are currently on the market, that's a pretty big deal. That means that it cut itself through an awful lot of noise and people who had an awful lot of options still found time to watch this movie enough to make it a relative hit. Now, what does not seem to be the case is that it's going to be the kind of hit that's going to justify sequels, that's going to justify a Justice League 2 or 3. But that's okay. Look, a lot of people have focused on that this week. You know, and I, I use this phrase, you too, about how like if this data that was published in Variety on Monday is to be believed, uh, if this stuff is accurate, if this is an accurate depiction, that this thing was far behind Godzilla versus Kong, behind Judas and the Black Messiah, and didn't touch Wonder Woman 84, you know, it, it's basically the final nail in the coffin if you want Justice League 2 and 3, right? You know, and I said that, and, and you know, it's, a couple of you got a little hurt by that, but it's just the truth. And aside from that, you got to remember, though, this thing didn't have to be number one to be a hit. And what I mean by that is Warner Max only spent up to 70 million on this streamer, on this movie. Remember, people like to focus on the fact that this is a $325 million blockbuster. But remember, that's not the case for Warner Max. That's not the case 
for the folks at HBO. These were the first dollars they ever spent on this Justice League movie. So that's 70 mil. That's all they really wanted to see come back on their investment. They wanted to see if that 70 mil generated enough buzz and subscriptions to justify greenlighting that thing. And I don't see how that isn't the case. You know, again, we're going to have to see what the churn rate looks like. But a $70 million streaming project getting this level of buzz and leading to a surge in subscriptions, maybe not the big, huge surge we were hoping for, but it led to a surge in subscriptions. It led to a lot of general buzz and activity. And it's buzz and activity that only cost them $70 bucks to generate. So when people talk about Zack Snyder's Justice League not being this runaway smash hit. Yeah, listen, it, it sucks that that's probably not the case. But you got to remember, it did not have to be. And it does not have to be for the Snyderverse to live on. Because as I pointed out last week, there are other things that can be developed that are not Justice League 2 and 3 that still continue on the story of Zack Snyder's Justice League. That could still continue to, to add payoffs to that 70 million dollars that they invested in this film and i'm talking about things like joe manganello's deathstroke i'm talking about things like ray fisher's cyborg and it's kind of funny too because i brought that up last week which i recorded last thursday night before kind of any of the interesting things that happened over the weekend uh took place but last Thursday, when I recorded episode 131, I mentioned the possibility of uh, about how a Deathstroke series getting a, a green light anywhere in these next couple of weeks is going to be a perfect way to sort of service the Snyder audience and to continue to sort of add some value to their decision to release Zack Snyder's Justice League. And then what happened? Within like three days of me putting that up, Everyone is suddenly talking about Deathstroke HBO Max, hashtag Deathstroke HBO Max, and Joe Manganiello tweeted it out, and he posted more pictures of himself in the suit, and there was all this energy around like Monday or Tuesday about this hashtag Deathstroke HBO Max. And it's like, yeah, see, I guess I'm not the only one. Yeah, I'm not trying to take credit for putting that out there. I'm just saying other people see that. Other people see that a Deathstroke series would be a perfect way. And honestly, it's not even out of the question. Why would it be? A Deathstroke series is not expensive to produce. And you've already got Joe Manganiello, an HBO star who rose to fame in HBO's True Blood as Alcide the Werewolf. You have Joe Manganiello wanting to come back to HBO and do a DC property of a low-budget, gritty, dark Deathstroke movie. That would not even cost you $70 million. You could probably make a Deathstroke series for like $30 or $40 million. You could do it on like a true detective budget, okay? So... It's a very sort of smart play. If they want to try and service the Snyder audience, the Deathstroke thing just makes perfect sense. And like I said last week, if that's a hit, then you can justify Cyborg. And I know that might sound a little weird because, okay, Deathstroke can be super low budget, right? Because he, he's not really super powered. It's more of a mercenary in, a, in Gotham City. And, you know, it's something that you could film almost treated like a John Wick type story, right? But with Cyborg... 
obviously there's a lot more special effects. He's going to, you know, the, the entire, his entire look, every time he's on screen, it's going to cost you money. And he's a guy who has to fly. He has abilities. He transforms into stuff. It's instantly a much more expensive proposition, a cyborg thing. But I don't think it's unrealistic because we know that virtually everything we saw in Zack Snyder's Justice League was new, was stuff that had to get sort of redone and refinished because Joss Whedon didn't use any of it. So Joss Whedon had thrown out pretty much all of the old cyborg footage. I'd thrown out anything else. So, and, and that's stuff that had, that, that, that's stuff that hadn't even been completed at the time. It wasn't a hundred percent ready to go to theaters anyway. And he just cut it. So all this cyborg footage that we just saw in Zack Snyder's justice league got to look as good as it did in these last few months. That means that within that $70 million budget, which had to cover a lot of ground. That was not just for Cyborg. That was to cover the Nightmare reshoots. That was to cover all kinds of special effects. And they were able to do it within 70 million. So all that Cyborg stuff we saw was just some fraction of that 70 million. So clearly there's a way to tell a Cyborg story without breaking the bank, without having to make it this huge expensive extravaganza. So when it comes to Cyborg, I still hold firm that there is a very real way for us to one day get a Cyborg continuation. I really hope it happens. I loved the stuff that he was working on with Terry Owen Snyder. I loved what he wanted his Cyborg to represent. You know, and when I watched Zack Snyder's Justice League, I was blown away by like, this is such a thoughtful, inspirational, aspirational arc. You know, it's such a damn shame that they cut it. So listen, I would love for them to do it, and I don't think it's cost prohibitive. So ultimately, it's going to come down to the fact of, do we think that Zack Snyder's Justice League made a return on its $70 million investment? And again, we're not going to know that for certain for a few months, but for the time being, we know that it did some success, and we know that a $70 million movie doesn't have the same stakes doesn't have the same baggage and expectations as a 300 million dollar movie so even though these numbers are not blowing us away even though these numbers are not the impressive ones that make us feel justified they don't have to be okay so let's see what happens let's give it a few months I still think we might get some Deathstroke news, and if we play our cards right, we might get some Cyborg news beyond that. But obviously, there are some big fish to fry when it comes to Cyborg, and that is the next subject today. So let's get to it. Ray Fisher has had a, a, a beef with Warner Brothers now since last summer. Last summer, he finally broke his silence on what his experience was like working with Joss Whedon on the reshoots. And for the better part of the last year, he's been sort of waging war with the current brass at Warner Brothers Pictures. And this week, the latest and perhaps final a salvo in that battle uh, happened on Monday because Fisher had a chance to basically share his story in an unadulterated way to Kim Masters over at the Hollywood Reporter. And that is a huge deal because I've told you guys for years, THR is basically Warner Brothers' big soundboard. 
for a lot of their large scale announcements, they call up the Hollywood reporter and say, hey, can you help us pass this news on to the world? So for THR to allow Kim Masters to publish this interview or to even assign for her to do it and okay it, that is a huge, huge deal. And according to Masters herself, she tweeted later that day after the article was published on Monday, she tweeted you know, that Warner Brothers did not want me to write this. So... Clearly, there was some pushback because of that relationship between the WB and THR. So now let's talk about this because there's a lot of different things that came up in this interview. And I've got like 12 or 13 little bullet points I want to run through here with you because it was a fascinating read. It really was. And one of the first things I want to say that just jumped out at me was... It fully, finally drives a stake into the heart of Joss Whedon. I feel like now if there was any doubt that Whedon was not the jovial, kind-hearted, uh, you know, mastermind behind the architect, uh, behind the Avengers and, and Buffy, you know, the lovable, big, feminist, happy, geek nerd that he was, uh, the final sort of stake through the heart of that was in this Monday report because he, you know, he, Fisher said plenty of things about Whedon that were inflammatory. And what came through this is that all of the investigations into this matter basically confirmed everything Fisher had to say about Whedon. And that even Walter Hamada thinks that Joss Whedon is a piece of crap. So that part became much more clearer and more crystallized. And I, for one, would be shocked if Whedon works on anything anytime soon. Because I think that the Whedon brand is now dead for the time being. And so many people have sort of come out of the woodworks now to say that he was basically a, bull a bullying jerk that I think he's done. So I, did, I just kind of wanted to put that out there real quick because I, you know, th that took some convincing for me, you know, because for years the press on Whedon was very different. The stuff that you'd hear about him and the types of projects he was attached to, he didn't seem like a bad guy. You know, and then again, it's not, it's not, obviously it's not the same as working uh, on the set with someone. But when you look at the type of stuff they write, when you look at the types of characters they champion, when you look at the themes in their projects, you know, you tend to sort of feel a certain affinity for a creator or not. And Whedon was someone that I was not looking to like hate anytime soon. You know, he had won me over for years with some of this, with a lot of the stuff he was doing. So for me to now sit here comfortably and say, fuck you, Joss Whedon, uh, you know, it says a lot. It says a lot. But now let's kind of get into some more specifics aside from fuck you, Joss Whedon. So one thing that I thought was interesting was that I shared something with you guys, I want to say like six months ago. And that got confirmed in this. Because when we were talking about this last fall, I brought up that friends of mine with skin in the game and who still have, you know, uh, connections and ties to that world of inside information, they passed along to me that one of the reasons Fisher was so upset was because he wasn't merely an actor on the project. He was brought on almost, he was treated, I should say, as a collaborator on the project. That before they had ever filmed, he got to sit down with Chris Terrio. He got to sit down with Zack Snyder and sort of map out the finer points of the type of cyborg he wanted to portray. I told you guys that like six months ago and that that's why this also like, all felt so sort of personal to him. 
And right off the bat in this article, that comes through. There's a quote from Chris Terrio, which we're going to have more from him later from his own interview. But in The Hollywood Reporter, Terrio is quoted as saying, with a white writer and white director, we both thought having the perspective of an actor of color was really important. And Ray is really good with story and character. So he became a partner in creating Victor. Now, to me, that's a beautiful thing, but it's also a warning sign. And we're going to talk about that later, but it, it, it is a bit of a warning sign because that's not the norm. Actors don't normally get to go to the, you know, the director and the writer and craft their character when, when it's a movie of this stature, when it's a character that they didn't invent, when it's attached to a property that's been around for decades, when it's a $325 million epic that's being overseen by corporate conglomerates and film studios that have been around for 80 years. It's not par for the course to have a little known actor sit down and map out what their character is going to be like. And we'll get to more of that in a bit. But the point is, Terrio and Snyder clearly created an atmosphere where that sort of thing was okay for Fisher, who had never worked on a big film at the time. So maybe he thought that this is par for the course, that you're allowed to go and basically say, how do I tailor this to what I want it to be? You know, but that got confirmed right away that he was indeed brought on to be a collaborator. And that, that, that was sort of comforting for me because, again, I passed on to you guys that bit of perspective. And it's always nice knowing that I'm not passing along crappy information to you, that the stuff I'm hearing. I mean, listen, I hear a lot and I don't bring it all to you. But the stuff that I go through the trouble to sift through and bring you information on, it's always nice to know that I'm not full of shit. So, yes. OK, so now we know beyond a shadow of doubt, Fisher did work very hard on this cyborg. And actually, later on in the Terrio interview, he specified that Fisher even came to his apartment in the East Village and they talked this whole thing through. So it's like, you know, Fisher was given an unprecedented bit of leeway and creativity early on when it came to creating his cyborg, which therefore explains a lot about why he felt so sort of personal about the things that happened to the character later on. So that's one thing. Another thing I want to talk about, though, is, you know, there's one of the things that, that he brought up in this interview that I've heard brought up several times, and I still see people bringing it up after this interview has come out because they see it as inflammatory. I have a slightly different take on it. And that thing is this whole uh, line about uh, we can't have an angry black man at the center of the movie. And I could understand why that sounds like racist or it sounds like hurtful or upsetting. Clearly, Fisher is very offended by that. And I do not listen. You know, I, I, I'm a man of color. I'm Cuban and Puerto Rican and I've dealt with my own thing. So I'm not here to act like he is or is not entitled to feel that way. But. What should be noted here is that you could also argue that that, that that idea, that that vantage point is anti-racist. And here, here's why. Because the, the, the stereotype of the angry black man is unfortunately a real thing. 
it is a it, one of the stereotypes. You know, there is an angry black man stereotype. The black man who's not who feels held down. The back the, the who's mad at the world. Who feels like he doesn't he isn't uh, accepted and and given the same opportunities as everyone else and so on and so forth. You know that that is a stereotype. And they were worried that as they're chopping this film down to two hours and trying to simplify all the narratives, when they look at Fisher's plot points, when they look at, you know, at the cyborg that is currently on deck for this movie, it is a Frankenstein's monster, more sort of tragic version of the character. And if they're going to put all of this, you know, make him the heart of the movie, but the joy in the character doesn't really become clear until maybe the final minute. It, you know, it, you could kind of see where, like, you know, it's going to look really bad for us if the only black superhero. And you know, remember, this is before Black Panther even came out, so this was their chance to portray a black superhero on the big screen before even Marvel got to do it, right? And they're probably thinking it's not going to look good if the only black hero is just mad all the time and is mad at society and mad at the world and feels like this ugly misunderstood Frankenstein. We don't want to give the impression that that's what we think black people are. You know what I mean? So you could actually argue that it's a different, you know, that they were actually trying to protect Cyborg in a way and thinking that portraying him as this tormented Frankenstein character doesn't really do Cyborg any favors. And in this two hour movie that we're trying to lighten and make a little more hopeful and a little more optimistic, having this brooding, tragic character brings the whole thing down. You know, so in that way, it's not personal against Fisher. They wanted to lighten the tone of everything. And his very tragic arc that he had worked on intimately with Terrio and Snyder was going to sort of clash with that attempt to lighten and brighten the story. So in that sense, and just like the, 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 the investigator eventually said, you know, there's no proof that there's anything racially behind these changes. These changes can be explained away as just for the good of the movie. So you're going to have to like really find a smoking gun if you want to prove racial animus. Because even through the very fair and thorough investigation that Fisher initially complimented, even you know, throughout all of that, they didn't come up with anything that said anything about anyone being racist. So, you know, that, that's just a factor here that we need to kind of keep in mind as we continue through the bullet points here, okay? But just before I move on, the thing about the angry black man, yes, it sounds awful on the surface, but if you look at it from the vantage point of we can't have the only black guy on the team just be a brooding, angry guy it's just it's it's not a great way to represent him uh you know you, i think you can kind of understand perhaps where the other side is coming from especially too you know the fisher also brought up the, the, the this this comparison between you know instead of thinking of cyborg as frankenstein and there goes some beeping from the trucks outside if you hear it i'm very sorry but you know instead of representing him as this tormented Frankenstein's monster who doesn't even really want to be alive because he feels like an inhuman abomination. Um, instead of thinking of him that way, thinking, think of him more as Quasimodo, 
You know, a character who has deformities and who does have a tendency to want to hide from the world, but who really has such a kind and beautiful nature that the audience roots for him. That the audience wants Quasimodo to realize his self-worth and see his beauty because his internal beauty can overcome the exterior. You know, so John's apparently had spoken with him about like, you know, let's approach it more like Quasimodo. And again, he was uh, offended by that. But again... If you're looking just more so macro, big picture, at what you're trying to do for this story, suggesting someone treat it more like Quasimodo than Frankenstein is not particularly offensive or out of line or hard to understand. It's just a different way of viewing the character. And the problem becomes, though, you know, Fisher has this quote after, you know, about that conversation. Fisher says, I didn't have any intention of playing him as a jovial cathedral cleaning individual. And it's like the part that gets me about that quote is the I didn't have any intention part. You know, this is what ties in now to what I brought up a few minutes ago. Your intention doesn't matter. When you're working on a movie like this, I mean, this like in general, no matter who you are, whether you're Gal Gadot or Ben Affleck or Ezra Miller or anybody, think of any actor on any big movie. Okay. Your, what you want to do with the character that's, you know, that's, that's in your head. That is your goal. That is what you would like. But when you're working on a $325 million film that involves characters that have been around for 80 years, that is going to be pushed around the world as this huge comic book event film, your personal intentions on how you want to play the character are really sort of secondary, you know, and, and maybe that sounds insensitive. Maybe that sounds not right. But remember, we're not making these movies to please the actors in the movies. We're making these movies to please the fans who are going to buy the tickets and the toys and everything. So, you know, that line from him, to me, it, it, it conveys like a, like almost like a, just a misunderstanding of, of your part in all this. Because yes, I understand, Mr. Fisher, you have a way that you want to do it. You had a way that you intended to do it. But at the end of the day, when you're on a film set and you're working for Warner Brothers and they're, they're the ones signing your checks, you got to do it the way they tell you to do it. It's nothing personal. It's not because of the color of your skin. It's not because of anything else. There's no widespread conspiracy. When you're working on a you know, huge blockbuster film, you're going to have to make compromises. You're not going to get to do things the way you personally intended to do them. Sometimes you get lucky and you can pull that off, but usually you got to be a huge star who's already got this proven track record of box office clout, who's already kind of brings so much, so many intangible benefits to the project that you cannot be ignored. You know, maybe if you have that kind of sway, if you're Tom Cruise and you go, I don't want to play Ethan Hunt this way, people are going to hear you out. If you're someone who this is your first big movie, you're going to have to, unfortunately, you know, you can make suggestions, but once they slap those suggestions away, you got to just tuck your tail, go and do your job and get out of there. That's just the nature of the business, you know, and it sucks that, that like feelings were hurt and that it felt so personal and, and all that. But, you know, at the end of the day, that line, I didn't intend to. It's like, eh, well, that's not, you know, I, I'm sorry you had no intention of doing that. But it's really not your call.
Um, let's see. Okay, yeah, this is a big one. This is a big one here because something else I brought up to you from a different source. It's funny, all my people still come through for me. But after, or maybe even as part of that same conversation I had with you guys six months ago about the Fisher situation, I also pointed out that one of the things going around is that Johns may have threatened him. And that is a legal issue. If Johns threatened him, if Johns said, you either do what we say or you get fired, that would be a legal issue and a huge problem. So that was also part of hopefully what this investigation was going to unearth. Was there a threat? And unfortunately, according to Fisher himself, there wasn't one because now he's finally able to explain what it was that happened between him and John's. And I'll just tell you the way it is um, laid out using Fisher's own quotes. Okay. So um, John's called, uh, yeah. So John's called Fisher into his office right before they were set to film. They're in Burbank, California. And John's calls him in to let him know that it's not cool for him to have gone to Toby Emmerich with his ideas and the changes that he wants made for Cyborg. And that's not like wrong of anyone to say. There is a chain of command. You don't, you know, if you have a creative qualm, you go to the director or the producer and depending on the relationship they have with them, the writer. Those are the people that you deal with, the people who are actually on set, part of the everyday making of this film. Now, if you've gone to those people and they've said what they've said, and then you go to their bosses over their heads, that's a no-no in any job. In any job, that's going to lead to an issue. Think about it. Think about no matter what you do, okay? If your manager asks you to do something, and then you tell the manager you don't want to do that thing or you have some issue with what the manager said. And then you go over the manager's head to the owner of the business. That is going to cause a situation because there is a chain of command and that boss hired that manager to deal with these problems. The boss doesn't even want to hear about your stuff. They have a manager to deal with that stuff. And I bring that up because like you got to imagine... Emmerich probably called Johns and been like, hey, is everything going all right with Justice League? Because I'm getting emails from cast members with with script notes like you got to you got to get your affairs in order here. You know what I mean? No boss wants that to be happening. So what happens here? Johns tells Fisher, you can't just you don't go to there is a chain of command. You can't just go to the boss. It's just not cool. And then, according to Fisher, he said, I consider us to be friends, which Fisher says they weren't friends. And then he also attributes this to Johns. He says, I consider us to be friends and I just don't want you to make a bad name for yourself in the business. That's all he said. And that's the thing. That's just good sound advice. If you're going to work in Hollywood, you got to know you can't just you can't call up a studio head with your script notes. That's not how any of this works. And if you do, you're going to create a bad reputation for yourself. Okay. and what's interesting is that's all he said. And then Masters wraps that paragraph up by saying Fisher took that as a threat. So all this time of hearing about the threat, the threat, the threat. And it's apparently just a matter of interpretation. That's just how Fisher 
perceived it. That's him sort of reading between the lines. Like, oh, he's telling me that, you know, I have to be careful because, you know, in, in this business, that's not the way things are done. He's saying that I, I'm going to give myself a bad name. But instead, he's looking at that like, oh, so he's threatening me that if I don't play ball, that I'm going to be blacklisted from Hollywood. You know, that like that's how he chose to interpret it. But the actual words he attributes to John's aren't those words. It's just the way he interpreted those words. So that's interesting too. And it's something that we really kind of have to factor in here. A, 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 the head of DC films, Jeff Johns calling you in and saying, I don't think you should be, you know, you should make a bad name for yourself in the business by doing stuff that is a clear no, no, that is not a threat. That is someone trying to level with you as a new actor, letting you know how things go. And then, you know, in an attempt to continue the, uh, the, the racist narrative regarding Jeff Johns, this thing is brought up regarding Krypton. There's a couple notes on Krypton, and I want to address both. Uh, the, I'm going to start with the thing about the hair, because Nadria Tucker has brought up this thing about hair and, and, and this black character wanting to have different hairstyles depending on the day and so on and so forth. And she apparently got a lot of blowback from that from Jeff Johns. But as I'm reading this, I'm also just thinking about how this is a continuity issue. On TV shows, you got to have the same hair all the time so that when you're reshooting things or if you're going back to certain days, you got to make sure the hair matches. But even beyond that, even beyond that, right now, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about your favorite TV characters. Now think about even the supporting cast. And when you think about your favorite TV characters, don't they always look virtually the same? Don't they? Only the clothes change. But the general appearance looks exactly the same. And maybe from season to season, you'll see a thing where like, oh, okay, in season two, this character has a little more scruff than they did in season one. But then that's a choice made for the entire season. It's just the way TV's always been done that recurring characters need to look alike all the time. That's, it, it's not a racist thing. It's, it, it, it's about helping the audience build familiarity with the characters and to not create unnecessary distractions that don't impact the story. Like if it's part of the story, like, oh, you changed your hair, you know, what's that about? And it's, it's part of a character decision in the story, sure. But if it's not part of that, then it's really just a distraction. So all characters always look virtually the same for the entire season that they appear on. You're not going to see a character in episode one look totally different in episode two, then totally different in episode three, and then episode four, they have the same hair from episode one. That's not what happens. And while Nadria Tucker is absolutely right that in black female culture, having extreme changes in hairdo is a normal thing. I mean, who could argue that? Absolutely, it's true. But that doesn't change the fact that on a TV show, you got to keep the hair the same for the whole season. That's just how it's always worked. It's just how it's always worked. So I don't know why this had to get worked up into such a thing. And it's funny because through his reps, John said, like, it, it's it's basically unfortunate that a, a, a basic conversation about a continuity issue is now being turned into something much uglier. And the thing is, even if you were to just remove everything you know about this Krypton show and just use your own experience 
TV characters almost always look exactly the same except for their clothing. That's just the nature of television. Okay? It's nothing personal. It's not a race thing. Everyone's hair stays the same throughout a season. Okay? And the other big thing about Krypton, and this one, you know, I understand why this got, why this sparked some outrage. But as usual, I have a slightly different take on it. Um, the other thing about Krypton, which Jeff Johns worked on, was that there was talk about having Seg L, which is Kal El's grandfather, be played by a black actor. Uh, that guy from Bridgerton, what's his name? Re Reggie. Uh, see, I don't have it now. I should have known. Uh, he, he seems awesome. A friend of mine says that he would make a great Superman. And honestly, I mean, he seems like the type of guy who maybe Ta-Nehisi Coates and J.J. Abrams should contact if they are thinking of doing a black Superman thing. But there was talk that they were thinking of casting him as Kal-El's grandfather and that Johns didn't want to do that because they felt like... Superman having a black grandfather is just going to cause a distraction. It's, you know, in theory, they need to be casting someone who could be Henry Cavill's grandpa, or at the very least, the grandpa of a more traditional you know, of a traditional Superman. And you know, this gets tricky. Again, I know that this is a polarizing and divisive hot button issue for some of you, but. You got to understand when it comes to race bending certain characters, unless it's part of the story, unless it's part of why a particular movie or series is getting made, you know, because let's say they're making some alternate Elseworld tale and part of it is here's a black Superman, um, unless you're going to justify it in that way, then there's a really no, no, no need to do it, no need to do it. Because then it just seems arbitrary. Then it seems like you're race bending just for the sake of race bending. And when it comes to this Krypton thing, yes, technically speaking, of course, of course, especially a light skinned black actor like the one they were thinking of, of course, he could have a grandson that basically looks Caucasian in real life. Of course. That's, you know, that's how it works. But as you're promoting this show and as you're trying to sell it to the widest audience possible, if you're going to sell a show about Superman's grandpa, but the star is a black guy, it's going to create just a little bit of confusion. There's going to be people going, oh, so is this leading to the birth of like a black Kal-El? You know, it's going to create like questions that don't really need to be there unless it's part of the story. So if you're trying to do a show that's just like where the, the actual hook is this is about Superman's grandpa dealing with some old crazy stuff on Krypton, then if that's all you're really trying to do, then you don't, you don't want to add elements to that that are going to sort of confuse what the premise is or confuse what people should be focusing on. Especially if your show is on sci-fi, which means your audience is going to be sort of limited to begin with. You want to try to welcome as many DC fans as possible. And doing something that might imply that you're making Kal-El black is a way to like make certain members of the fandom go, oh, this is just another one of these like social justice warrior shows where they're, they're, they're trying to completely change a character that has always been portrayed a certain way. Now they're trying to make him black just for the sake of some sort of quota or diversity. I'm not saying that that's right, but you, you create sort of a, a, a whole extra conversation around Krypton that perhaps didn't need to be there. So this idea that like, 
Johns is against changing the races of characters or whatever. I mean, it, it's it's a little ridiculous because he's already got history of doing that in the comics. I mean, with Cyborg specifically, Johns is how Cyborg ended up on Justice League. Okay, but there's also characters that he's changed over the years from traditionally all white teams. He's changed characters in Justice Society. He's changed characters elsewhere. This is not a guy who is against that. This is a guy who's trying to produce a show about Krypton, about you know that, that, that's supposed to sort of feel almost like a prequel to Man of Steel, and he just doesn't want to create unnecessary questions. Clearly, he's not against changing the race of certain characters. He made Zod, you know, or he made like one of Zod's relatives a black guy. So it's like he's not against doing that, but when it comes to Superman, you don't want to create something that's going to be a distraction or that's going to make it harder for people to want to check out your show. You, you want to invite as many Superman fans into the tent as possible if you're making a show called Krypton. And for better or worse, you're going to create some uncomfortable conversations if you make his grandfather black. Unless, again, you're going to make that part of the story. If part of this mythology that you're showing here is that his, you know, his, changing the, his, his appearance and the way he's portrayed, if that's part of the approach here, then do it. But if you're just trying to tell a story about you know, Kal-El's grandpa dealing with some crap on Krypton before uh, the stuff that we know in the present day happens... There's really kind of no need to go there or create those questions and unnecessary conversations. So once again, I don't see that as a race thing. I see that as a, we don't want to muddy the waters when it comes to our Krypton show. We want people to focus on, this is Clark's grandpa. We don't want them asking questions about, oh, is Clark a black guy now? Did he still land in Kansas? What is he going to be like? You know, instead of opening that door, they just said, simple. Let's cast a guy who looks like he could be the grandfather of the traditional Superman that most people can picture in their eyes. I don't think there's anything all that wrong with that, especially when you look at John's history of actually being pretty inclusive in his comic book properties. And then the next, you know, target of his uh, of his ire, and the next bit of information that came up in his uh, interview here with the Hollywood Reporter, is about Walter Hamada, because you know for months he's been coming hard at Walter Hamada. He's called him the most dangerous type of enabler. He drew a line in the sand saying, "I will not participate in." any DC project he's part of. And that's how he ended up not being part of this Flash movie. He's accused him of interfering and meddling and, tr and, and, and trying to cause interference on this investigation. But yet, in this article, in this interview, he's given the chance to go to that room and express himself. You know, put us in that room with him and Walter. And he's given the opportunity to put words in Walter's mouth. And the words he puts in Walter's mouth are not that incriminating. So it's like, here we go again. So here, he, here's, you know, so here we go. We have months and months of he's of them saying he's a dangerous enabler, needs to, he's fired, he's been trying to hide everything, he's this terrible person. But then here's what, according to Fisher, happened in that meeting he had with Walter. Uh, Mr. Hamada, I don't know him like that, trust me. Uh, he says, he says, Hamada called Joss an asshole. Strong start. And said, 
I'm just looking to get past anything to do with Justice League. Joss isn't here anymore, and I don't plan on hiring him again. But according to Fisher, Hamada said he did not believe Johns had done anything wrong. I don't know John Berg very well, he said. I know Joss was difficult, but Jeff, Ray, he's really getting dragged through the mud, and I'm sure you're getting your share of hate too. So that's apparently all Fisher has to say about Hamada's remarks about this issue. And what you'll notice here is he's at no point does Hamada say, hey, look, I know Jeff Johns is a piece of garbage. I know he did all these racist things, but let's please just leave him alone. He's my buddy. Let's just say Joss was the evil one. Fisher doesn't even claim that Hamada said that. All he says that Hamada said was that Joss sucks. I don't know this Berg guy, but I don't think Jeff did anything bad according to what you've told me. So let's just leave him alone. And then what did the investigation prove? Exactly what Hamada said. The investigation, which Fisher gave thumbs up to when they called him on December 11th and he tweeted about it, talking about a fair and thorough investigation and all this stuff. They told him in that same phone call, they told him in that same phone call that we didn't find any sort of racial animus or racist sort of uh, motivations behind any of these things that you've brought up. Okay. They told him that. So he knows that no real dirt was uncovered about Jeff Johns, aside from maybe these little whispers about things that happened on Krypton. So what Hamada said eventually bore out. That's what the investigation proved, that Joss was an asshole and Jeff was just trying to do his best with this crazy situation he was put into. But not that he was racially profiling Fisher and demeaning him and belittling him because of the color of his skin. So he's saying, listen, Joss was the asshole. Joss is gone. Jeff didn't do anything wrong. Leave him alone. That's all he said. But that made Hamada... Public enemy number one to Fisher. And beyond that, the thing that he really seems to get mad at is this issue of when they put out a statement that Fisher was not cooperating fully with the investigation that he himself requested. Uh, Fisher refers to that as like a hit piece, as like a smear. It's his, it's his interpretation of it. But this is something I was talking about with a couple of my friends in, in DMs this week. It's like... He wanted them to issue an apology. He wanted Hamada to come out and, and, and kind of fall on his sword and say, I'm so sorry for what we've done to Fisher. But the fact of the matter is, in a literal and technical sense, Fisher did not cooperate with the investigation at first. He openly admitted that. So when you're telling people through your Twitter that, Yes, they asked for an investigation, but then I hung up because I didn't think that they you know, that it was a true third party thing. And then they come out and say, hey, we tried to make an investigation and he didn't cooperate. They're not lying. 
You know, yes, you, you could argue that there are nuances in the situation. Fisher felt that he was within his rights to say, you know what, I, I, I don't want to proceed with this investigation until I know that certain things, certain protections are in place. Whatever it is, Fisher had his reasons for not cooperating. But at the end of the day, he did not cooperate. He made a choice. He made a principled choice to go, I'm going to hold on to my side of the story until this investigation investigation is being handled in a more fair and impartial way. He made that choice and God bless him for it. But when the studio then comes out and says he didn't cooperate, they're not technically lying. And meanwhile, he sees that statement. That statement gets referenced a few times in this article. He sees that as the smear and as the hit piece. And that he sees as Walter Hamada trying to muddy the water and put misinformation out into the public to try to discredit a black man. I mean, he's taken this to a place that's incredibly like personal and incendiary. And like Hamada was basically just telling him to go fuck off. When in actuality, whoever okayed that statement was not lying. So it's like, on top of that, there's another line here that I thought was interesting. I thought it was interesting from, from Kim Masters' sort of vantage point, because she's the one who did the interview. And just as earlier, she referred to a quote as, you know, Fisher took this as an insult. She also refers to this in an interesting way. Because when she references this, she says, the company said Fisher had refused multiple attempts by the investigator to contact him. Fisher saw that as a smear. Once again, saw that. She's not saying it was a smear. She's not saying, oh, this is undeniably a smear or an attack on Fisher. She's pointing out once again, the studio did this. And here's how he saw it. Here's how he personally looked at it, which, you know, th 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 that sort of implies a, a certain amount of separation between what he's saying and the truth. It's interesting. Throughout the interview, she, you know, she presents a lot of what he has to say, and she's clearly advocating for him. But she won't go as, so far as to say that his claims are 100% what happened. She's she keeps saying, this is what he said, but this is just his side of the story. And then here's what the other side and the other side almost always contradicts what he's saying. You know, so it's she did a wonderful job with the interview, but she also made sure to be, you know, a fair journalist and not just go and point angry fingers in one particular direction. You know, she's pointing out that a lot of this stuff we're discussing is really just a matter of perspective. It's really just a matter of how you choose to digest the information you were just given. And in Fisher's case, he chose to digest all this information in a way that felt very personal and very vindictive. But meanwhile, the investigation itself didn't prove any sort of like malicious intent with the changes. Forrest herself released a statement, you know, that is cited in this. You know, the company responded with a statement from Forrest saying Hamada was credible and forthcoming and did nothing that impeded or interfered with the company's investigation. And when asked, like, are there further examples of him trying to impede things? You know, what what is it that he did to try to tamper with this? There is nothing. 
All Fisher says is that he had that, you know, the conversation about Joss is an asshole, but leave Jeff alone. That's what he that's what he counts as tampering. So it's like, once again, these huge accusations, he keeps leveling at people. Now, when he's given a chance to back them up, it you know, there's no smoking gun in any of this. And you could argue the other side's perspective very easily if you want to. If you're not going to be biased, if you're not going to have like a dogged horse in the race, you can easily see how all of these things he's explaining one way can be explained another way. And when that happens, it, it messes with your credibility, unfortunately. And he seems like very pissed that like the racial angle was focused on so much. Um, you know, he, in the article, it says to Fisher, the information Forrest shared was so limited that it seemed the purpose was clear. She was only authorized by Warner Media to attempt to explain away anything to do with race. But like. Well, yes, Mr. Fisher, yes, because that is a legal problem. That is, this investigation is not an investigation into hurt feelings. This is an investigation into were any rules broken, were any laws broken, were any protections that we as a studio are supposed to offer you as a talent, were any of those protections reneged? Were any of those protections not offered to you? Were you discriminated against because of the color of your skin? That's what they had to figure out because otherwise there's no, there's no other remedial action to take. How do you punish someone for hurting someone's feelings? You know, so when the fact that he's angry about like, oh, this was, all they cared about was the racist thing. And as soon as they said that there's no racist thing, now it's no big deal. Well, yeah, that's kind of the thing. Because the purpose of the investigation is to find out, did we do something wrong? So probably the first priority was figuring out, did Jeff Johns threaten him? And then as soon as they figured out, okay, he didn't threaten him, then what's the next big thing? Oh, the race thing. And then once the race thing comes back and no one has anything racial to say about anyone there, now it's time to move on. You know, so the fact that like Fisher goes out of his way to denounce the fact that this author, th that this investigation was really just boiled down to a race thing, but it's, it's bigger than that. It's like, it's not really, you have to prove where somebody broke a rule so that someone can get fired or penalized. If at the end of the day, all you're going to give me are your feelings and hunches about, about why someone did something, we can't help you with that. And we can't prolong an investigation and release further statements and, and, and do all this stuff based on things that are not law breakings, based on things that are not a betrayal of our rules on set. So it's just, um, it's a frustrating situation because I know his heart's in the right place. I'm not saying any of this out of any sort of dislike of Fisher or even what he wanted to do with Cyborg. You know, I, like I said, maybe a half hour ago now, you know, I, and, I, and I've been saying it for the last few weeks across different Zack Snyder's Justice League review shows I've been on. I loved his cyborg and I can fully relate and understand where he's coming from and why his heart felt ripped out of his chest with what they did to his character in that film. But when it comes to all this stuff with the investigations, you know, and, and, and seemingly wanting to get people in, in sort of large scale trouble or completely rock the boat over at Warner Brothers, 
uh, I honestly think he bit off way more than he could chew because based on the stuff that he was, you know, going to have to provide a burden of proof for, nothing he really brought to the table is enough to get anyone fired. And before I move on from Fisher, I also want to touch on this issue of the Flash movie because that came up in the THR piece. Because as we know, Cyborg was offered a role. Ray Fisher was notified last summer that there was going to be a part for him in the upcoming Andy Muschietti-directed Flash movie. Big deal, right? But then how did Fisher respond? Fisher responded to all this through the filter of, I'm having this war with the studio. And what he said, essentially, he drew a line in the sand. He made an ultimatum. He said, since Hamada is the worst kind of, um, what did he call it? Enabler. And, and all of these things that he said, because of this, I will not, I refuse to participate in any DC film he's a part of. And ultimately, he forced their hand. Because when the, when the results came back saying that he was, that Hamada had been credible and forthcoming and that he had not impeded or interfered in anything, what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to fire Hamada just for the hell of it? So it's like he said, it's either him or me. And they went with him. I mean, it, it sucks. It sucks. But who told him to draw a line in the sand? I'm sure his manager didn't suggest he do that. You know, who's throwing down ultimatums? Like, unless you have a smoking gun, unless you have Walter Hamada on video doing something unbelievable, how do you expect the people from Warner Brothers to react when you say him or me? You think they're going to go, okay, Mr. Hamada, we're going to just boot you out of this office so that Ray Fisher can play Cyborg for a couple of weeks in the Flash movie. You know, like it wasn't, it wasn't, it was a crazy, risky play for him to do that. And it didn't pay off. It didn't pan out. And that sucks for him. But he, it's not like he was fired. It's not like he was penalized for his war against the studio. He created this ultimatum, him or me. So he, now he has to live with the outcome of that. And another aspect of all this flash stuff that I think some people forget about is that, yes, he at one point, he was going to have a much larger role in this Flash movie. But sometimes when people talk about the Flash movie, they talk about it as if it's the same movie Fisher was originally attached to. You know, as if it was the same Flash movie that Rick Famuyiwa was developing in 2016. Remember when Rick Famuyiwa posted that picture in 2016 that he was in London with Ezra Miller and Ray Fisher and that's when we first started having the rumors that the Flash movie was going to be like a buddy film with the Flash and Cyborg and that also that's why Flash and Cyborg kind of like have some scenes together in the theatrical Justice League to set up a buddy dynamic between the two of them. So there, that, there was a movie being planned at that time in 2016, heading into 2017, where Cyborg would have played a much more integral part. But after, Cy after Justice League came out in 2017 and poisoned the well for a lot of stuff, that Flash movie got completely redeveloped. 
it got scrapped. Remember, there was supposed to be a Flash movie coming out at like the start of 2018. And then at the end of 2018 was going to be Aquaman. Like there was all kinds of stuff that was supposed to happen that never ended up happening. And people forget that. And that's important here because the Muschietti Flash movie is a different movie entirely than the one Famuyiwa was going to make. So, and, and that's important because some people look at this like, well, that's not fair. How can it be that he was going to have a huge part a bunch of years ago? He was going to have a huge part and now they just cut it out. See, they hate him. They did this. This is all against him. But it's like, no, it's not. This is not that movie. Muschietti is not making the movie that's the buddy film between Flash and Cyborg. He's doing a Flashpoint story where there is a part for Victor Stone if they want it, but he's not the integral part that he was once going to be years ago. Different script, different director, different creative approach, different everything. And I think that Fisher, sometimes when he talks about this, it's almost like this insult about how, what do you mean it's only a cameo? I was once going to have a bigger deal. See, this is further proof of how they're holding me down. I was going to have a huge, substantial role in a Flash movie, and now it's a cameo. But it's like that happened to everybody. A lot of plans changed after 2017. All these movies got tweaked and changed and permutated into something different. So it's like once again, you know, he he created a situation where there was a cy there was a cyborg cameo, and possibly even more than that. He says he would have been filming for two weeks. So it would have been a decent little part in the movie, and instead he had to go and say it's either Hamada or me. So now he's on the outside looking in, and unfortunately, he has no one really to blame for himself because a lot of the people he's mad at don't even work at Warner Brothers anymore. So instead of trying to create a new, nice relationship with the new bosses, he started burning them down too and trying to get Hamada fired as well. Hamada, was, who wasn't even there during the original Justice League, just because... Just because he told him, listen, I hate Joss, but I don't think Jeff did anything wrong. Can we leave Jeff alone? That, according to Fisher, is the big thing he did. And he also implies that Hamada was behind the statement where he said, where, where they said that Fisher was not cooperating. Regardless of whether or not Hamada was clued in on that statement going out, it doesn't change that in a literal sense, Fisher was not cooperating in the investigation. So this blood feud that he's now created against Hamada, you know, it, it's really, really hurt his chances. But I feel like maybe not all hope is lost because there is one little silver lining in this. One silver lining in this is that Fisher expresses that he's not beyond forgiveness and that he's not beyond opening a discussion with some of these people who he felt have wronged him. Because he even cited the fact that John Berg has since all of this drama has actually called him and apologized for Fisher's experience on the set. And, point, and he pointed out how, you know, it must have been very tough having a bunch of straight white men telling you exactly how to do your job after you thought you had everything worked out, you know, and, and Fisher said, I let him know that that it did mean a lot. I'm not beyond forgiveness when it comes to this kind of stuff. It was a very big thing for him to do. No one else in the process has reached out at all. And that to me is where I can get on Jeff Johns and Joss Whedon and Walter Hamada and anyone else. 
Like, pick up the phone. Okay, if, if, if at the end of the day, if what this issue is about is about hurt feelings and for creating a, a, a rough working environment, then why not just pick up the phone and bury the hatchet? You know, this story's been dragging on now for quite a while. So the fact that Jeff Johns and Walter Hamada haven't seen it fit to call him up and try to bury the hatchet, to me, is very disappointing. Because I feel like this is a this is a situation that can be remedied. And if it gets remedied, it could lead to more Ray Fisher cyborg goodness. Maybe not on the big screen, but like I said, over on HBO Max. If they see enough success coming out of this Justice League release, and if they were to try to maybe pursue a Deathstroke series, if they determine that this is an audience that they want to cater to, we could get more cyborg if... Fisher can just figure out a way to create peace. So here's hoping that like peace gets created, that Hamada calls him, that Johns calls him, that they have conversations like the ones he had with John Berg that make the, that make everyone feel like let's turn a corner, turn a page on this ugly chapter in this saga. And now let's push forth, you know, because if they determine there's an audience for Snyderverse type stuff. Listen, like I said, it's probably not, it's not the sizable audience we would need for a JL two and three. But if there's an audience there for like a forty five million dollar cyborg movie or series, why would they turn their nose up at that? You know. So I really just hope that uh, Fisher and and the other parties involved here find a way to bury the hatchet and move on because these are all clearly very passionate people. And Fisher clearly has a lot of beautiful ideas in mind for things he'd love to do with Victor Stone. And I'd love to see what he has in mind. So if he could figure out this personal animus he has between Johns and Hamada, it'd be great. Because I feel like all of us fans would, like, we would all win. We would all win if this all just finally got settled and put away for good. But... You know, we're, we're going to see what happens. Ultimately, I think one of the dangerous things here or one of the things that led to this sort of uh, setting, this sort of relationship between Fisher and the studio was that Terrio and Snyder were so generous and so gracious to Fisher early on, letting him be a partner in creating this Victor Stone that they perhaps set him up to think that his voice and that his, you know, his say on things was a much bigger deal than it really probably was. And it created a very ugly situation when Fisher wanted to try to voice his opinions on things, because that's not typically how things work in Hollywood. Okay. And if you have an issue that you have, you want to deal with, you go, you, you talk to the director, the producer, the writer, you don't go to their boss. And also once you go and you bring that note to the director and they say, I hear you, but no, unfortunately that's the end of it for you. You're an employee and you got to do what they tell you to do. You know, it is what it is, but you know, Terrio opening that door up for him, Snyder opening that door up for him was a beautiful gesture. And, you know, I do want to talk now about Chris Terrio because he had a lot of like very, very interesting things to say this week in his interview with Vanity Fair. So this Terrio piece from Vanity Fair to me was very interesting, but sort of for different ways. It, 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 it's funny to me that a lot of what came out in this interview 
lines up with just opinions I've had over the years. It's like hunches and opinions that I've been talking about on this show since like 2016, 2017 now. Uh, he voiced them. He showed me like my hunches were onto something. And I thought that was just interesting. But before we get to hunches, you know, he clarifies certain things about the timeline that I find very interesting. Because, for example, how he came to be involved with all this is characterized in a pretty interesting way, I think. Because Affleck was announced to be part of BVS in July of 2013. And we've always heard, you know, like the PR spin about how, you know, Affleck really, really fully loved what Snyder was going for. And he really believed in, you know, the, the vision for where these films were going and what this film was going to be. But what's interesting about this interview is that the way Terrio kind of puts it is that I was brought on to appease Ben Affleck. Yeah, uh, you know, he he was having some misgivings about the script and where things were, and the studio brought on his Argo writer as a way to sort of throw him a bone. You know, uh, Terrio himself said, "I think the studio brought me in to appease Ben Affleck because they thought, okay, well, we have this movie star who is reluctant about doing this, so why do we bring in his guy?" So that's interesting, right? That shows that Affleck. I mean, he was, he was, he was in it enough to sign on in July, but then what is that? Uh, why am I terrible at math? Five months later in December, according to Terrio, his friend and collaborator from Argo, according to Terrio, he was feeling reluctant about the project only five months later. That might explain, by the way, some of like what happened later on about why he he finally just sort of like said quit and I'm done with all this because even early on in the process apparently he was a little bit anxious about how this was going so in July he joins the project in December they bring in Terrio and what Terrio apparently wanted him to do uh, to, uh what Affleck wanted Terrio to do was my job was to create a story and a tone really in which Batman could be that person and in which two heroes could get to the point where they're fighting to the death. So he brought him in to try to justify everything, to try to give the actual title fight a justification and to really kind of like bump out the character stuff. Also on the subject of the stuff that he was asked to do, you know, he says, so he asked if I would read the script and consider doing a rewrite. He asked if I would do some character work. So it was already determined and storyboarded that Batman was going to be trying to kill Superman and that Batman was going to have gone down a dark road. He was branding criminals and it had certain dark elements that were non-negotiable and already in the story. So it's literally like Affleck saw there's all this crazy sort of dark interesting murky stuff here but the character work of it is not really there it needs to be more fleshed out all this stuff needs to have more of a reason for happening because right now i guess maybe at the time it was just feeling like it's happening arbitrarily it's happening because someone decided it should happen as opposed to a story that really justifies why batman and superman are trying to kill each other or rather, at least why Batman's trying to kill Superman. So that's an interesting way to sort of frame 
why he came into the project. He came into the project with a script that was already in place that had apparently already been written on and worked on by the studio alongside David Goyer. So he came in and inherited that script and Affleck said, okay, here's the script. Can you just beef it out some more and add more motivations, you know, flesh out the characters and make everything have more of a strong reason for being. Um, and I just think that's an interesting way to, to approach entering the project because it's not like he came in from the beginning and wrote this thing from scratch and it's his baby and it's his vision and it's exactly how he would have done a Batman Superman movie. No, he was brought in to basically help make this make sense. And that's not to say that he didn't like, you know, some of what was in there. You know, he, he has another cool quote in this interview where he says, I came into it thinking the only way that this could work is as a fever dream or as a revenge tragedy. I thought, how do we create a story in which Bruce Wayne is traumatized by the war of Krypton coming to Earth and in which he enters into this kind of madness? He becomes Captain Ahab and he won't listen to saner voices like Alfred, for example, who were telling him to just see reason. He's a man possessed. So the film was dark by its nature. So I think for, I just think that's fascinating. I only read that quote because I think it's just, again, you could tell he took it very seriously. And he's like, okay, you want these guys to fight? Then I'm going to dig down deep into Bruce's psyche and give him like a real, you know, tragic, powerful, mythic sort of reason for having to get vengeance against Superman. You know, I, I think... Uh, I appreciate that. Listen, if you if part of your thing is to come in and go, these two have to fight and I have to make give them a reason to fight, I, I'm glad that he was trying to basically bump out the logic in that situation. Um, by the way, he also mentioned that he hates the name. And to me, that was like, that was just, that felt good because I've long said for years that that name did the movie no favors whatsoever. And to have the screenwriter say that, it's like, okay, good. So I'm not crazy for saying that. But really, it either should have just been Batman v Superman or something like Dawn of Justice, but not Dawn of Justice. To have both there, it doesn't read like a story. It reads like you're just uh, like, like corporate messaging. It reads like the, the, the people who write the checks want you to know that, hey, Batman and Superman fight, and this is a prequel to the Justice League. That's what Dawn of Justice means, because Dawn of Justice doesn't tie into Man of Steel. That phrasing doesn't tie into Man of Steel, right? So what does that title mean as a sequel to Man of Steel? It means nothing. The only thing that that title does is let you know, oh, there's a Justice League movie coming. And if you're a fan who's, you know, maybe not in the mood to watch these two heroes fight, you might even think, well, this is the lead up to Justice League. I'm just going to skip this and I'll watch Justice League. You know, the, that title doesn't help you want to see the movie. You know, had it just been something like Batman versus Superman, ooh, what's that about? I want to see what that's about. Or something storyline driven. Like I've tweeted this, if you wanted to call it like A Dark Knight in Metropolis or Man of Steel, Enter Batman. Or, you know, like you, you could do like so many different ways that actually builds on Man of Steel creates intrigue for what's happening here and doesn't give away where you're going next. 
So anyway, that title to me was always like when they announced it to me, it was the biggest eye roll. I mean, I wish I can go back and find the Lost Fanboys podcast with Jammer and Kelvin that I did where they asked about you know, where they had just named it. And I was just like, yuck. Because and remember, this was during that age, during that era there where there was like Terminator, Age of Extinction. And there, there, there was lots of this like blank of blank that was big. And now we have Dawn of Justice. It just felt so like cynical. It felt like people in a boardroom just trying to come up with like, what's a title that's going to sell the most toys? And it didn't feel like anyone thought of a title that serves this story in the best way possible. And for Terrio to be throwing dirt on the title to me is just like, yeah, okay, good. It was ridiculous. But also even beyond that, he, he points to like how it comes off in a cynical and sort of tone deaf way, which as I just described it. But he says, I heard it and I thought... It just sounds self-important and clueless in a way. Tone deaf. The intention of the film was to do something interesting and dark and complex. Not quite as Las Vegas bust em up WWE match as Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. It just comes off like this ridiculous marketing ploy. Not a movie title so much as a marketing tagline. I love that he basically points that out. And also he goes, he goes to task on the theatrical cut, which by the way, he himself, the writer of it calls it an incoherent misfire, the theatrical cut. And that's very, that, that's a big deal because again, people forget this and it's okay to forget it, but you got to remember the world by and large, the people who powered that movie to an $873 million worldwide box office back in 2016, those people didn't see the ultimate edition. They saw the theatrical cut, which the screenwriter is pointing out is an incoherent misfire. So just think about that for a second as you start thinking about what happened with this franchise. And the fact that BVS made it into theaters in the state that it did basically poisoned the well to where even the creatives on the project are like, yikes, what movie is this? This is not the script I turned in. This fight doesn't have any logic leading up to it. Here's what he said about it. After they cut out the half hour, Terrio says, so this house of cards that had been built in order to motivate this clash between America's two favorite heroes made no sense at all. That that was what happened with Batman Superman. The movie was always was going to be dark. There were always going to be people who just didn't want to see that version of a comic book world. And I get that. But what hurt was the criticism that the script was not coherent. Because when I turned in the script to the studio, which they, by all accounts, were happy with, it made sense. So... It's just, it, it, this needs to be pointed out. This needs to be said, and this needs to be sort of accepted now at this point, that that theatrical cut of BVS did a lot of harm to the perception of what these films are and what they could be and where Snyder and Terrio wanted to go. That theatrical cut, cutting that half hour out, really, you know, it gimped the story 
And it made it into an incoherent misfire, as even Terrio himself admits. So, you know, and again, and that's not, a, that's not a Snyder problem. That's a Warner Brothers problem. And that's where I go back again to a studio and I want to go, hey, guys, you approved all of these films. You approved this whole arc. And before we even get the first movie out in that arc, because BVS was supposed to be the launch pad for all this stuff, before we can even get BVS into theaters, you're cutting out the half hour that helps it make a little more sense. What is the matter with you? <sighs> and what Terrio says next is so like, mwah, it's a chef's kiss of an observation. Because it's something that I've been trying in vain to try and explain to people for years and sometimes you know it's easy for people to shrug me off because who am i i'm just some schmuck in his basement recording a podcast for you i don't work for warner brothers i'm not you know part of some massive uh, entertainment media company with all of this real world experience to share with you i'm just a guy looking at it from the outside and pointing out that doesn't make sense or that does make sense but something that I've been pointing out for a while is this idea of like goodwill, this idea of people coming into the movie with the right sense of openness and interest in the project. And what's interesting here is Terrio seems to feel that the reason people came into theaters with an axe to grind wasn't so much because they wanted to just show up and hate on this movie or because they're paid by Marvel or because they have an anti-DC bias. No, he says basically the reason that they walked in was because of that crappy title and because the movie that they were given ultimately didn't make as much sense as it could have. Here's the quote directly, though. He says... Uh, I'm actually going to use Anthony Bresnikan's uh, question in this from Vanity Fair. I've been following Bresnikan for years. If you haven't been, uh, he's an awesome film writer for genre films who goes back to like Entertainment Weekly and everything. He's like one of us, but he works really hard and he's really good at what he does. Casey kind of reminds me of Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert could be uh, like a, an Anthony Bresnikan one day, I think. But here we go. So Bresnikan says... Do you feel like the title and the cuts for length made it harder for people to appreciate things that did work in Batman versus Superman? Because, and I, th I love that question because there are things that worked. And yet when people speak about that movie, it's always in these extremes, like it was just this dumpster fire. And uh, here's what he had to say. He said, that's exactly right. The audience has to know that they're in good hands. The minute you lose them from a story point of view, they lose the desire to look at it generously. Once the critics decide a movie is incoherent, it's just a pylon. Then they attack everything. So I'm going to stop right there because that that is a point that I've been making here from my garage for a very long time. This feeling of coming in and 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 having goodwill and trust and faith that this is going to be a good time because the audience has to trust you. They I, I, the audience has to feel like I'm in the hands of a great storyteller. As soon as you start doing things that make them go, "Ugh, what is that?" Now you have an uphill battle on your hands because now you have a, an audience member who, instead of leaning in 
and trying to find out what's happening. Now they're leaning backwards and crossing their arms and going, I don't know about all this. And Terrio is basically describing exactly that. The audience has to know that they're in good hands. The moment that you lose them from a story point of view, they lose the desire to look at it generously. And that's the thing. You know, we all do that, right? A lot of times when, you, when you're excited for a movie, you walk in with generosity in your heart. You walk in with a desire to look at it like it's great because you're rooting for it to be great, right? And that element, I think, is an important part of all this. And the way Terrio sort of describes it is, listen, if you're going to give people a movie that has a title that sounds like a stockholder's wet dream, and then a storyline that's very sort of choppy and doesn't justify how over-serious everything is and doesn't really get you into that title fight, then you're basically asking to be poked fun at and ridiculed because you're taking this huge gamble. You're taking a huge gamble that people want to see America's two favorite superheroes, as Terrio put it, fighting each other to the death. And you're hoping that they're going to want to see that. And if you don't justify it, you're screwed. If you don't back that up in some way, if you don't pay off on that risk that you're taking by having to basically Bugs Bunny and Mick, Mickey Mouse fight each other. If you can't deliver on that premise and get people excited for it, then this whole thing was a waste of time. And in his eyes, the theatrical cut did not justify the fight. The theatrical cut did not play in a coherent and interesting and thought-provoking way. And, I, you know, it explains a lot of why the critics were as hard on it as it was. And I just think that's an interesting way to sort of approach it. And it's, 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 it's honestly, it's a mature way to look at it. Cause Terrio could have gone out there like other people have said and said, oh, their critics were dicks and they, they, they hated this movie before they even saw it. But instead he's acknowledging that like, we kind of made it hard for people to give this a chance. We made it very, we, we, we gave critics an uphill battle to give this film a chance. And I think it takes great maturity for anyone involved with the production to come out and say that. Uh, he also said, uh, you know, regarding like the, the, the pile on and the attacks on the movie, he said that was the climate in which the film dropped anything and everything was attacked because the reviewers questioned the motives behind the film. And to some extent, I don't blame them. The marketing promised this mindless fight movie and any attempt to make something real or complicated was just met with anger and vitriol because the audience just didn't assume good intentions. So very sobering, very interesting comments from him on this. And also, I, I love that he kind of claps back at like the darkness quotient. And not, he's not saying that the movie isn't dark. He actually says something here that I'm like, I'm surprised he described it that way. But what, what, what he's clapping back at is this notion that he wanted to make it this dark. Okay. So he, uh, Bresnikan asks him if he feels blamed for how sort of dark and murky BVS was. And Terrio said, the studio seemed to take this position after BVS that my writing was too dark and that this was their problem. But what they didn't mention was that, for example, in the draft of the Batman Superman script that WB had developed, the one that 
David A- uh, David Goyer had written, which was the draft I was handed when I joined the project. Batman was not only branding criminals with a bat brand, he also ended the movie by branding Lex Luthor. That ending was a point over which I explicitly went to the mat with the studio again and again. I argued that Batman cannot end the movie continuing this behavior, which amounted to torture, because then the movie was endorsing what he did. It's one thing if Batman begins the movie as a dark version of himself, whom we don't recognize, but he has to see the error of his ways and remember his better self in the course of the movie. By the end of the movie, he needs to be the Batman we know, and he has to be ready to go and create the Justice League. Otherwise, I said, what was the point? So Terrio has like, I love the way he says all this stuff. I love the way he describes finding the proper motivations for Bruce and Batman, but also giving him an arc to where by the end, he's not where he was at the beginning. And what he's pointing out here is that like they had a dark, crazy movie in mind before he'd ever been hired. And in fact, he lightened it in a way by, by, by giving Bruce Wayne a redemptive arc he lightened the movie compared to the movie he'd been given where, where Batman is still branding people and sending them to jail even at the end of the movie after all this has gone on. So again, Terrio is just dropping all these amazing insights and it didn't stop there. He takes it a step further too. Like aside from the thing about Batman um, branding people at even at the end of the movie after he uh, after the battle with Superman, um, there were other examples of dark things that he fought for to tweak to lighten. And uh, he said, he said, I'm the one who had been saying that we can't make a joke out of Superman raining hell upon black African Muslim characters in the desert. As Lois promises that Superman is not going to go easy on them because they punched her. So let's say there was a scene when the the, the terrorists in that desert scene punch Lois and she makes some sort of comment about how Superman's going to get all of them. And he knew that that doesn't play well. That makes him sound like a blunt instrument. That makes him sound essentially like a like the U.S. military sending an attack drone to the middle of the desert. You know, Terrio's a brilliant dude, and he brought a lot of socio-political know-how into this. So he said, um, so in describing that situation where Superman's going to rain hell upon a bunch of black Muslim African characters in a desert after they hit Lois Lane, Terrio says, but somehow I'm the person with the dark sensibility? I wanted to say, I've been saving you from yourselves. I've been working with the director to bring a voice of conscience and sanity to the almost perversely dark film you've been developing for years. But I'm the problem here. And that's the line that I mentioned earlier. That Terrio called BVS before you, the, the script that he'd gotten from David Goyer. Uh, was the most perversely dark film. <laughs> he said, uh, <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. That 
Warner Brothers had been developing a perversely dark BVS movie. And uh, he, here he is just trying to be like, okay, listen, if you're going to go to this place, we have to at least like justify certain things and get, ground everything and something that feels real and relatable. Otherwise, this is just insane what you're going to ask audiences to sit through. You know, so Terrio was really kind of like on our side. He says, I removed the punch of Lois for one thing. Just think about the optics of that. I was able to add material to the film and ask the movie to grapple with what that battle meant so that it didn't seem like a casual scene of Superman intervening in this way without reckoning with the consequences of intervention. I place that in context of a moral question. See, so again, this is, uh, it's another example of like, he was given a specific storyline and these things just happened in it. And he said, okay, fine. If you're going to have these things just happen, then we have to ground that out with some sort of justification. So that seemed to be like one of his overriding missions with this BVS movie was to like, you know, if you insist on telling this story, then I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to make everything at least have some sort of internal sense of logic. Um, and yeah, and he, it, this is interesting too. He said later, when I realized that so much of the plot was going to be cut out, I began to think, well, they didn't really want this kind of story. The last things to get cut out always are the stunt scenes and the special effects scenes because they cost so much. By the time they're all in there in the assembly, enormous amounts of money have been spent on every frame. So when you're looking to cut time, the things that get cut out tend to be the big effect sequences or the fights or the stunt sequences. The things that get cut are the nuance, the scenes that actually give meaning to those bigger action sequences. I think that's a problem not only with this film, but I suppose for all tentpole, tentpole films. I loved that quote because it takes me back to two weeks ago when I was talking about one of the reasons I loved Zack Snyder's Justice League is that it, it included all of like the justifications for some of the bigger things that happen in the story. And he, and remember how I said, it's, isn't this weird? Two weeks ago, I said, it looks like when they're cutting Snyder's films down to make them shorter, they cut out all the character bits and just leave the action set pieces. And here's Terrio saying exactly that, that they cut out all the interesting character pieces because listen, they spent all the money on the action. So we're going to keep the action in and let everything else be damned. So once again, here's like Terrio letting me know that I'm not completely crazy with these observations I have about how these films get made. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, now, now then he moved on to Justice League and there's some really interesting information about Justice League here. So since it was clear that he didn't have like the greatest experience working with BVS, he was asked, you know, why did you then go and agree to work on Justice League? You know, it, it sounds like this was not necessarily the smoothest, most amazing experience for you. And he pointed out, he said, I agreed to write Justice League because I wanted the chance to write these characters with love and hope after getting through the darkness of Batman versus Superman. 
The end of my version of Batman v Superman includes Bruce seeing the error of his ways and promising to change. It's the return of conscience after an ethical nightmare. And in Justice League, Bruce does do better. He says, there was a mood of fear at the studio. My impression was that people in boardrooms started making the decisions and they were decisions based on arbitrary metrics that had nothing to do with the stories that were being told. Right before the time of Batman Superman, I was asked to attend an event in New York where the cast and filmmakers were paraded in front of a room of investors at the Time Warner Center, I guess to convince them that their money was in good hands. These guys were in charge because they controlled the money at the top of the pyramid. They were making big decisions. Not the film executives we're talking about, but Wall Street guys. One guy I can only describe as the man whose central casting sends you when you're trying to cast douchebag number one, pulled me aside and started telling me how to write Batman. I'm not naive. I know that if you don't want to have any back and forth with the money people, then you should write poetry because you don't need hundreds of millions of dollars. But something about the distribution of power at that time just seemed off to me. It was removing even the pretense that capital wasn't calling the shots. What he means by that is these are all money decisions. This is all based on metrics. No one seems to be caring about the actual story being told or the you know how these stories are being developed. They're just trying to figure out how do we maximize our profits. And that's all they seem to freaking care about. But here's where things get interesting, though. Because following that meeting, you know, Bresnikan asked him, you know, what impact did these studio tensions have on your writing? And he said, I rewrote Justice League to lighten the mood a little bit, which became the Zack Snyder Justice League. That's a slightly lighter, less dense version of the script, which I was fine with. I'm sane and I will play ball with those kinds of nerds. <laughs> nerds? <laughs> I like that. No, and I will play ball with those kinds of notes. So... That's interesting, too, because this is the first time we're getting confirmation of exactly what script Zack Snyder used for his ZSJL. Because remember, there was an original script, there was a rewritten script, and then there was the Joss Whedon script. And it looks like ZSJL is actually not the original script, but rather the rewrite that Terrio turned in with the studio notes, which confirms feelings a lot of us have had. A lot of us have noted that like this does not feel necessarily like the same creative, you know, seed that gave us BVS. This feels like it's a little more rounded out, like there definitely was some more um some more voices in on it in trying to round out the story to an extent. And Terrio just admitted that the ZSJL is the rewritten lighter one that incorporates the studio notes. And I think that's just a pretty important note, you know, because figuring out exactly what version of this story would be how he made his Snyder cut was a big question I've been asking on this show ever since they announced that the movie was coming. That, that question of which script. And now, according to Terrio, it is his rewritten via studio notes script that actually comprises the Snyder Cut. Um, another thing that he touched on here 
which is just something that like I've been hammering them for for years from the outside that now Terrio is revealing is the truth from within is the lack of planning, the lack of communication about all these different projects that are now all working together and all being filmed practically simultaneously. And here, the guy who wrote BVS and Justice League doesn't even really have like much of a say or any know-how as to what's happening with these other films because it's all up in the air. There was no real grand master plan. And listen to how Terrio describes what it was like having to deal with the lack of a plan because he notes that like the people in the office, like Kevin Sujihara and them, they were making seemingly like arbitrary decisions about when these movies would be coming out, but no one was consulting with him about how any of this stuff is going to work. So here's what he said. He says, I was not consulted on the order of the films, even though I was the person writing Justice League. They just determined that it was going to be Batman, Superman, and then Wonder Woman, then Justice League, and then Aquaman. So there was never any thought of how the world was constructed before they issued this edict. They said, conform to this schedule. And when asked, like, you know, how that made things tricky, he says, the Wonder Woman script wasn't even finished when I wrote Justice League. So I had no basis to write Wonder Woman other than Batman Superman. Themyscira didn't even exist. I was never shown anything on the page for it. I didn't know whether people could talk underwater. That was a thing that I had to ask because I didn't know if I could do underwater scenes with Aquaman and Atlanteans. It was all just from scratch because there had been no solo character films. So here he is basically just describing the sort of frazzled nature in which he has to create all of this stuff with everything being set sort of arbitrarily with him not even knowing the answers for where these characters are going or coming from. And doesn't this sort of explain a little bit too about why Diana's arc keeps sort of changing? How in BVS she was a gone, she was gone for a hundred years and didn't want to help humanity. In Wonder Woman, she's been around but in quiet and always helping humanity. You know, it just shows you that Terrio, while writing it, didn't know what this was gonna happen, what was gonna happen with Diana. And it's just that speaks to the level of disorganization and the lack of communication here in the departments. You know, so it's just, um, it's just crazy to think about all this stuff, right? And then he adds, too, with that whole, like, two-hour rule that Sujihara wanted for Justice League, he says, so Justice League needed to establish three of the characters. It had to create a long-game mythology for the DC Universe. It had to resurrect Superman because he was dead at the end of the last movie. I just don't know how you could do all that in under two hours. Maybe the 2017 release proved that you couldn't. But um, honestly, hearing him just vent about that, to me, just feels like, yes, okay. So I, I wasn't just being mean and nitpicky when I would point out that these freaking people don't seem to have a clue and there's no real sense of like rhyme or reason where there's a team of storytellers working on making this large-scaled universe. This was all happening piecemeal and slapdash and in order to meet arbitrary release dates set by people who have nothing to do with the storyline so 
Oh man, Terrio really brought the thunder this week. And one of the last things I want to just bring uh, bring about from that interview, because you know, he was asked about what it was like with John Berg and Jeff Johns on set every day. Because the, the rumor has that there was like a mandate from Sujihara that Berg and Johns had to be there to essentially babysit Snyder. And, you know... He asked, he asked Terrio, uh, Bresnikin asked Terrio what he thought about having Berg and, and Johns there as, uh, as those babysitters. And he said, look, I admire Jeff as a writer of DC Comics. He's been nice to me and it's a perfectly cordial relationship. As an executive, you get into very thorny territory when you have a person who's a writer who also is making executive decisions and sitting in the chair where on other films the writer would have been. What he's trying to say is there is like, you know, ordinarily with the executives, they don't really tend to have a lot of creative input. They're just kind of there to make sure that like, you know, the car is running. That's mainly what they're there to do. In Jeff John's case, it's, you know, like he says, it's a, it's a little more thorny because he actually is a creative and he's a writer with a lot of history on all of these characters. So when he's on set, it's a slightly different animal because he's not just there to make sure things are running smoothly. He's going to have a lot of opinions about how things are going. So he's he acknowledges that there's a weird dynamic there when the executive that you're working with is also a creative type and a writer. And listen, that makes a lot of sense. That sounds like a very sort of... Um, odd if not like uncomfortable work setup there but then he does mention something that i think should not get lost in all this he says so i think it's miraculous that zach shot as much of my script as he did because i know that there was constant pressure to simplify to change to do whatever it is that the studio wanted because there were rumblings that they didn't want this version and to me, that that's one of the interesting things here, because while we talk a lot about the power that was taken away from Snyder and the awful work environment that he had to be in, it should be noted that even with babysitters on set, even with Berg and Johns and their clipboards making sure that Snyder's doing everything that's going to please everybody, he still managed to shoot that almost all of Terrio's script, they still let him make the movie or at least film the movie that he wanted to make. And I guess the idea was, you know, film this rewritten version of it. We're going to offer daily sorts of tweaks on things. And then when we get into post, we'll make the movie in post. We'll take the rewritten script. We'll take the things that we changed on the fly and we'll find the movie in there. And then ultimately they figure, you know, they realize they couldn't make a salvageable movie, a salvageable two hour movie, I should say, out of that cut. And then that's when the whole Whedon insanity occurred. But you know, I think we have a more sort of clear sense of what the dynamic was like in 2016 when they were filming this, when even Terrio is pointing out that it's kind of a miracle, all things considered, that Zach got to film almost all of that script and that that, in fact, is what the Snyder Cut is. So, you know, we learned a lot this week. We finally got to hear more about Fisher's, you know, tale of the tape, the story behind what went into this feud that he has with Warner Brothers and DC right now.
We got to hear from Chris Terrio himself about what it was like to be sort of like the lead creative force on both BVS and Justice League. I mean, I guess we should say Zack Snyder, obviously, is the lead creative force. He's the director of the film. But as like his most important, arguably, his most important collaborator, as the person who, who, would, who put the lyrics to Zack's music... Terrio came out this week and described what it's been like to be attached to these movies for the last few years. And he shed light on the creative process. He shed light on what script was used for the Snyder Cut. He shed light on the mismanagement behind the scenes. And, you know, just it's been a blockbuster of a week for trying to break down how we got here, where we are now and where things could go next. And I'm glad we also kind of got to talk a little bit about the first bit of numbers that we're getting for Zack Snyder's Justice League. Because again, there are more numbers that we're going to have to look at in the months to come. But for now, what we do know paints a picture of something that was moderately successful, but not like a runaway smash hit. But don't lose faith because a moderate success is okay for something that only cost them 70 million bucks. And they can give us a lot more for around that budget if we play our cards right. And if the numbers continue to kind of be where they're at. So we'll see what happens. But hopefully you enjoyed today's very, very long form (laughs) discussion on all things post Zack Snyder's Justice League. Because... uh, Listen, there was a ton of news this week, and it was really important for me to kind of sit here with you and go through all of it. Because on the outside, it looks like everything is insane right now. It looks like Warner Brothers is on fire, like Walter Hamada and Jeff Johns are going to get, you know, uh, replaced any second now because of all the angry people and pitchforks and all these exposés getting written. But if you actually read the exposés... If you read every word of what's in the Fisher interview, if you read every word of what's in the Terrio interview, honestly, not a lot has changed in the last year. We've just gotten more verification of hunches a lot of us have had for years. And we've gotten more insights and background details on things that a lot of us sort of figured out just from the years of reading all the articles and seeing all the other interviews. So really, this was a week about filling in gaps of information that us fans did not have. But at the end of the day, where we are today is DC is moving into what it's moving into. They're, 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 they're moving into their whole multiverse angle. Walter Hamada is staying in place. Jeff Johns is staying in place. If there's any chance of a Snyderverse thing continuing, it's going to be like a low-budget Deathstroke type deal. And Ray Fisher, if he could just find a way to make peace with these people, if these people can reach out to him, if Walter Hamada and Jeff Johns can swallow their pride and just go, hey, listen, you know, I'm sorry things went the way they did. I want to make this right with you in some way. It was never anything personal. We were all just in a crazy situation trying to make heads or tails of a Justice League movie that no one was going to delay and we were going to have five months to remake. We're sorry for how things went in that time. But listen, do you want to be in this Flash movie? Come on, do you, let's work together. You know, if, if there are conversations that could happen that could bring peace and bring the fandom together. So I'm hoping that they find a way to do that. 
And I'm also hoping that you find a way to leave me a positive review on your podcatching app of choice and let your friends know that the Fanboy Podcast is a pretty awesome show. So everyone, thank you for uh, watching. Thank you for listening. And until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. Adios.